Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you guys here once again on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Now, we left off on the previous podcast and podcast 111 on the resurrection of Jesus. So we looked at Easter Sunday. We looked at the accounts of Jesus appearing and post-mortem to various different people. And so today in podcast 112, we now pick things up in John chapter 20, where we're actually going to be looking at two particular events, personal ones that is. One, when Jesus appears again to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there previously. He some somehow, some way, uh, and for whatever reason, uh, bailed and was trying to handle, obviously, these events and what had happened to the death of Jesus and where he was at. Was he going to rise from the dead? I thought he was going to establish his kingdom. Whatever was going through the mind of Thomas, whatever emotions he was dealing with, we're going to see Jesus appearing to him in the midst of his struggle. Now, I want to say this before we do dive in and look at this particular account with Thomas in John 20, 24 through 31. And that is this, that I've heard so many sermons by, again, well-regarded, well-respected pastors who mean well, but for the most part, a lot of them rip on Thomas. Uh, he gets a bad rap. He is referred to as Doubting Thomas because when people look at this account that we're going to be studying on today's podcast, they tend to get on him because he didn't believe. And it's like something's really messed up and wrong with Thomas. I actually take a different perspective. Matter of fact, I think it's a wonderful account of seeing a man who was not there for himself and he was not believing the disciples. Remember, even up to this point, even when Jesus was present among them where we left off in the previous podcast. And again, if you've missed it, you can always go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast or wherever you get uh, your podcast, wherever you download your podcast, it's available for you. And of course, my notes are there on our website. But when you do look at those accounts before we get into this account with Thomas, when Jesus was even among them, it says that they still doubted. And that's when he says, do you have any food? And he ate a fish in front of them. And before all that, the women came and said that they saw uh, that the tomb was empty. And then that uh, Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to some of the women and then to some of the disciples and then later to Peter. And then he was, you know, he appeared to the two disciples, Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. So it, it, the, the disciples had a hard time believing all of this. And certainly if you and I were in their situation, we probably would have had, uh, you know, disbelief in our own hearts. But when it comes to Thomas, uh, a lot of times people are really harsh on him. And I have to say that in the church world and why this is so important today as we're going to study it is how we deal with the doubt that people uh, struggle with. And in this case, what we're going to see is Thomas struggled with the evidence. And so he is what you would refer to as a doubter on an intellectual level because he knows what crucifixion brings and Jesus was publicly crucified and no one survives it. So he had to see for himself. He had to see the evidence. And we're going to see why we can actually get a beautiful uh, picture of how we respond 
when we're doubting about something. Now, the other personal encounter that we're going to see towards the end of the podcast today in John 21 is when Jesus pulls Peter aside. Now, remember, this is after the resurrection. There have been some encounters that Jesus has had with his disciples. We are told that that at some point on the on Easter Sunday, Jesus had appeared to Peter, but we don't know how long it was, what was said between them. But what we are told at this point in John 21 is leading up to all that occurred, the fact that Peter had denied him three times and was not there at the crucifixion and was locked up in the room with the rest of them, afraid of what the Jews or the Romans were going to do to them. Finally, at this point, after they go back fishing, Peter and Jesus have this time together. So these are two beautiful encounterships that Jesus has with his disciples. So hopefully, my friend, uh, you'll be encouraged as we study these two encounterships. And wherever you're at with, with the Lord in your personal life, I pray that maybe there's something you're going to get from Thomas's encountership or or Peter's encountership or both. Uh, because I certainly will tell you that as I've studied uh, both of these men and looked at these passages throughout my Christian walk, uh, they both have inspired me, and I hope that they will inspire you as well. So let's pick things up here now in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, where it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the, the twin, in Greek it's Didymus, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Okay, so John here has traced unbelief. Remember, if, we, if you want to deal with uh, belief versus disbelief. John is the one gospel that does that because when you go throughout his biography of Jesus, he provides these type of details. And so certainly uh, he takes advantage of this situation, this account with Thomas of how he's going to go from disbelief to belief. Now notice it says this phrase was not with him. Now it's possible that Thomas wasn't with the disciples because the initial shock as you can imagine, of Jesus' death was so great that he couldn't stomach it. Perhaps maybe because, again, we get some foresight here where he's very adamant that he will not believe unless he sees the evidence. And so that's probably what he's struggling with. And he uh, is probably dealing with it personally because sometimes maybe that's how he processes it uh, the best. And, And if you are like that, you can relate to Thomas. I tend to be that way as well. Or perhaps... Um, he had certain family matters that he had to attend to uh, and was seeking answers during uh, that opening week. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Uh, We can speculate, um, but it's uh, just some interesting thoughts as you look into the life of these men. So now as we look at verse 25, it says, so the other disciples told him, in the Greek, it means that they spoke to him with focus. So that means that they're giving him all of this evidence, all of these facts and all these appearances and saying, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails. Now this phrase, unless in the Greek, it's an affirmative response, basically meaning that as Thomas sits there, again, we don't know how long um, that the disciples were giving him the detailed accounts of seeing the Lord in his resurrected body and that he ate in front of them. But he's basically putting his foot down. He's saying, look, that's great for you guys. But what for, what what I need from all of this is not only to see it, but I want to place my hands in the mark of his nails. And notice he says, and place my finger 
and the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. He says, unless that happens, I will never, meaning I will certainly not believe. So in the Greek, the disciples here are explaining in great detail. See, this is important because when we just read in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. We think in our minds that they're looking at Thomas and he's in the room with them. And he's like, but Thomas, we've seen him. He's like, I won't believe unless I see it. But in the Greek, it captures that they're in this deep conversation, that they're providing him great detail one after the other of giving him an eyewitness account. So it doesn't, it doesn't appear, and this is important as well, as they're telling him this, it doesn't appear that Thomas distrusts their stories. You notice that? Nowhere does it say that Thomas disbelieved what they were saying. Notice he says, unless I see. See, there's no fault in Thomas demanding to see proof for himself. This was a man who was willing to die with Jesus. Go back to John 11, verse 16, and who asked Jesus how to know the way in John 14, verse 5. See, Thomas was simply stating to the disciples that he would need to see and touch Jesus for himself. That's what he needed. And so I ask you, my friend, when it came to your conversion story, when you look back at your testimony of how you came to Christ, what did you need? I know, and I can speak for myself as an evidentialist who grew up you know, with many family members who were Catholic, I questioned a lot of what they believed and wanted to know, even as a young child, why do we do these things? What evidence do we have to support them? When it came to looking at the validity and the credibility and the reliability of scripture, I investigated. That's why I started to go to school and study from people like Dr. Norman Geiser personally and start writing about it myself as I investigate. It, it just, it helps me. And that's exactly what we see with Thomas here. He wasn't doubting the experience that the disciples had with Jesus. He's doubting because he himself hasn't seen it and he needs to see it for himself. And so we're told here in verse 26, eight days later, uh, Jesus' disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That means he stood in their company and he said, peace be with you. All right, so we're told eight days later, since Easter Sunday, the disciples are still hiding out from the Jews. And Thomas has at some point in the week, he's returned to be with the disciples this phrase, peace be with you, Jesus was saying it to them on Easter Sunday when he appeared to them in his resurrected body, and he's saying it again. And I believe this is a peace that he was telling them about in John chapter 14 to chapter 16. So this is more than just the common respectful manner to bless uh, people in that time, in that culture. Verse 26, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now this word disbelieve means don't withhold from the truth. And the word believe is trust. Know that it's reliable. Know that it's faithful. So though Jesus wasn't present to hear these demands voiced by Thomas, notice he divinely knew and answers his request by appearing in his glorified body. Again, what's so important and why I put this in the proper context and to give us a true perspective, if you will, of this encountership, Jesus doesn't rebuke him right away. 
Now, obviously, we're told in John, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 16, and I believe it's in verse 14, that Jesus rebuked the 11 disciples for their unbelief. So he certainly got on them for not believing right away. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas's doubts. He recognizes them. And what does he do? He offers Thomas the proof that he needs in order to believe. For Thomas to go from disbelief to belief, he needed to see the evidence that he had demanded. Again, not disrespectfully, but Jesus complies, not because he's forced, because that's what Jesus does. He gives each of us what we need to believe. No one in their right mind, when they stand before God, before God and must give an account, can blame God for anything. God gives all of us what we need. And oh, there's a lot of people, I, I, I think of the, the legendary atheist Bertrand Russell, they said, if, if you were to die, and let's just say you were to stand before God, God was real, and you stood before him, what, what would be the first thing you would ask? And he said, I'd ask him why he didn't give me enough evidence, why he didn't give me enough proof for his existence. And that's a snobbery way of responding to say, there is not enough evidence, therefore God does not exist. That's not what Thomas is saying here. Notice in verse 28, Thomas doesn't respond and say, give me more proof, eat some more food, do some jumping jacks, take me to the tomb, explain how you did all this. Thomas in verse 28, he responds by saying, my Lord and my God. See, that's it. Thomas said, hey, great for you guys for believing. I need to see it for myself. Eight days later, Jesus appears, gives Thomas what he needed. And he says, my Lord and my God, Thomas emphatically declares Jesus is God. And now this is the first profession of faith. Isn't that amazing? Now we're told up to this point that the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but this is the first profession of faith by a disciple after the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this physical resurrected Christ obviously will not be tangible for the, the, the later church to believe like you and me. They, we must weigh the circumstantial evidence and take the eyewitness accounts for themselves and make a choice whether it's true or whether it's false. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have not seen me like you've seen me, but yet will believe. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus was thinking about you and me at this moment. And then in verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs, that means a culmination of miracles and actions, and the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this is a summarized fashion that John pins uh, these words to express the purpose of why he wrote the biography of Jesus. So now we transition to the other encountership in John chapter 21. We'll first read verses 1 through 14 when Jesus appears to the disciples by the sea and then how he pulls Peter aside and restores him. So here in John 21 verse 1, notice John writes, After this, Jesus revealed, meaning he manifested himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. This is interesting, by the way, before we go any further, because the way that John describes this encountership with Jesus, this appearance, it proves how special it was to them. Notice in verse 2, Simon Peter, 
Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, who's also mentioned in Matthew 10, verse 3, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. All right, so let's explain a couple things here. Number one, remember, the disciples had been locked up for a long time in Jerusalem. And remember, if you go back to Matthew 28, verse 7, what was one of the first things the women told the disciples after the angels appeared to them? That Jesus is going to go before you in Galilee. Well, guess what? They just traveled 60 plus miles to get to Galilee. And so now they've arrived. They don't know where Jesus is going to appear. They don't know when this is going to happen. Remember, a lot of the stuff does not make sense, but notice the obedience. They took several days to travel back home. They hadn't been there in quite some time. They're very emotional. All the stuff is still not making sense, but they go in obedience. And at this point in time, Peter is pretty directionless. And as a leader of the group, he says, hey, I'm going to go fishing. Now, this is in no way, shape, or form an indication that Peter was giving up, that he was abandoning his post as a disciple of Jesus. These men love to fish. This is what they knew to do. And they hadn't done it for a long time. Now, think about if you're a shooter or you're an artist or you love reading books or you love fishing or you love hiking or hunting or whatever the case may be, and you haven't done it for a long time and you come back home or something where you grew up. It's a special thing, right? It's a way to kind of bond, to relax, to kind of decompress, if you will. And I think that's what they're doing here as they're trying to figure out, okay, Jesus, we're here now. Where are you? Now, this phrase, we will go with you again, the disciples, they didn't want to miss out. If if Jesus had appeared to Peter at one point already and has appeared to them, but Peter is the leader and he has these conversations with Jesus that none of them really had. They want to make sure that if Peter goes, we want to go with him because we don't want to miss out if Jesus does appear maybe to our leader. So they're with him and and we're told here in verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So once again, Jesus appears, they don't recognize him. Now, one, it could be the distance where they're, they're at. Two, it's daybreak, so it's still dark. So they can't see the physical contours the appearance of Jesus. But notice that verse five says that Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Interesting how Jesus refers to them as children. And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now check this out because this is pretty cool. It was the standard technique to cast the net from the left side of the boat because the steering oar was what? On the right side. And notice though, when Jesus refers to them as children and they don't know it's him, but he tells them to do a technique that was not customary. It's almost like this guy on the shoreline, he's not fishing. And yet he's telling him to do something that you know as a fisherman that you don't do. But it shows the desperation of the disciples because guess what? They do it. They throw the net where the oar is, which makes it very hard and awkward to do so, but they do it anyway. And guess what? They catch fish so much so they can't even haul it in. Now, here's what's also interesting. Let's connect the dots because leading to this, Jesus is going to pull Peter aside and restore him. Now, remember when Andrew came to Peter and says, we found the Messiah and Peter starts following 
Jesus. At some point early on in the ministry, in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, remember when Peter had fished all night and they caught nothing and Jesus says, cast your nets out again. And he says, okay, if you said so, and he does it. And again, they can't pull it all in because it's so heavy. And that was a miracle. And what did Peter say to Jesus in response? He says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. So I believe all of this is pointing back to the lessons, to these personal encounterships that the disciples, particularly here, that Peter had with Jesus. Because notice in verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped from work and threw himself into the sea. Now, notice it was John who figured out the significance of the empty tomb, right? In the folded garments in John 20, verse 8. And now it's John who recognizes that it was Jesus who said that to them before the rest of them knew that. But guess what? And this is very typical of the personality of Peter. Who's the one that jumps into the water to swim ashore? It's Peter. I mean, the moment he realizes that it was Jesus... He impulsively jumped into the water. He swam ashore to greet Jesus. He wanted to be there first. He just couldn't take it. Now, another thing that's interesting to note is before he jumps into the water, it notices he he put on his outer garment. This is important because Jewish greetings were very intimate and they had a religious tone to them. So you could not, in that culture, greet a person without being properly dressed. So, so that's why he, put, he puts back his outer garment because it says he had been working because he wanted to properly uh, greet Jesus. And then we're told in verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. Now the parallel of this incident when you go back to Luke 5, 1 through 11 is remarkable because as I was saying earlier, it demonstrates the faithfulness and the love of Jesus as they started to follow him He provided for them. And as they're still following him and it doesn't make sense, Jesus provides for them. He not only gives the evidence that Thomas needed, but he also gives them the fish, if you will, that that they were seeking. So the disciples get it at this point. They're realizing, man, when, when we're at our wits end, when we're tired and exhausted working all night for nothing, and yet Jesus comes and he instantly gives us what we need that just humbles them and it, it, and it creates in their heart this, this greater need and dependency for him. Just like you and I today, when you go through trials, when you try to do something and you can't do it in your own strength and you turn to God and you rely on his faithfulness and God is faithful, as you and I know, he never changes. His promises are always there. And when you soak on them and you meditate on them and you trust in them, You see God do amazing things once again in your life. So then we're told here in verse 9, when they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish. That means the dainty delicacy of these little fish that were kosher. And it was laid out and there was bread. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So here, as they do get to shore, Jesus prepares the disciples a delicious meal after this long night of labor. So he not only provides him the fish, this miracle that points to him, but also he makes this amazing meal for them. And he's putting on display for them, once again, a servant's heart. If you go back to the upper room and you saw that in John 13, four through 16, he washed their feet. 
Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net, the hemp or the flax ropes was not even torn. So Peter was such a fit man. Uh, he swam remember, over 100 yards to shore in his garment. And now he pulls over 300 pounds of fish ashore by himself. So he was a beast, which again, go back to when he was trying to race John to the tomb. That's why John beat him. He was a lot more slender and Peter was a more of a bulky, husky man. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So at this third encounter of Jesus, the disciples, they get to fellowship now with him and they get to enjoy a meal uh, with Jesus in their hometown. Now, this fishy miracle, I believe, again, and we got to stress this point because this is what Jesus does in your life and my life. He does these miracles when you're looking for them and you're anticipating them in faith and sometimes when you're at your wit's end, to boost your morale. So their morale was boosted. And it was a lesson that without Jesus, you can do nothing. Remember, go back to the upper room. He said that in John 15, verse 5 through 7. Now, 153 fish. Uh, some commentaries believe that this number uh, bears no symbol, that it simply validates the miracle by counting how many fish they caught so that they can sell the fish alongside the northern shore. And I think that's true. Because there's other commentaries out there that are saying, this is why it's significant that he said 153. I just believe that they counted the exact number because it's important sometimes for us not to miss the miracle that God puts forth in our lives. So now before we end the podcast, the last encountership is when Jesus pulls Peter aside in John 21, 15 through 19 to restore him. So we saw what Jesus did for Thomas. We see what he does for the disciples as they return to Galilee in obedience. And now notice in verses 15 through 19, this encountership that Jesus has. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, this in Greek means with focus, he wanted to have an intimate talk to Simon Peter. And he says, Simon, now this is interesting because the way in which he's presenting to him in his name, Simon, it's waverer, meaning you're kind of back and forth, son of John. Do you love, this is the word agape, me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love. However, the word here in Greek is phileo, meaning you know that I have such a deep friendship love for you. And he says to him, feed, in the Greek that's pasco, meaning feed the herd, tend to my lambs. Now, Matthew 26, 33 through 35, remember Peter told Jesus that he would never deny him. And yet we know that he denied Jesus not just once, but three times in Matthew 26, 69 through 75. And then we're told in Luke 22, 61 through 62, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So that's still obviously on the mind of the heart of Peter. And so when they finished breakfast, Jesus takes the opportunity to make things right with Peter, to restore him three times. And I believe this is important as you and I can read into the text. He does this to reflect, hey, I remember you denied me and we locked eyes. You denied me three times. You said you would never do it, but you did three times. What I'm going to do is I'm going to restore you three times. And notice when I'm restoring you, you're going to improve in your love and your commitment. Because he says, do you love me more than these? What Jesus is asking Peter is if you love me, 
then you're going to love me more than fishing or you're going to love me more than these disciples. And this love that Jesus is using is the purest and the most highest order. So Peter understands this. He responds, Lord, you know that I love you. He responds by telling Jesus that his love consists of a great affection for him, but it's not the same kind of love Jesus asked of him. Feed my lambs. This is the first order that that Jesus is giving Peter in his ordination. He's saying to him, listen, your love will never be greater than my love, but your love will grow because my love for you is perfect. And from now on, Peter, you're going to shepherd my people. I love 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, where Peter identifies who is the great shepherd of the sheep, but he refers to himself as a, as a fellow elder who is a shepherd of the flock among them. And as he's receiving this ordination, he's not to be a literal fisherman, but now he is to take the ordination of God here and to go forth and to care for people to be fishermen, member of people. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend, that in Greek is poimen. It means shepherd, care for my sheep. That means my adult sheep. So notice the progression. God keeps asking Peter, do you love me unconditionally? His love obviously is not there yet. Jesus knows that, but then he also challenges him with a greater insight to guard, to look after his people. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love? Now he says, do you phileo? Do you have a a great affection, a great friendship uh, for me? And notice verse 17, Peter was grieved, meaning he was sorrowful because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love meaning I have that affection, that friendship for you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So notice at this third restoration that Jesus actually lowers the standard of love. And what does it cause in Peter? It causes him to be sad. He knows that Jesus knows that. He knows the condition of his heart. Right now, Peter doesn't love God the way that he should. But in time, we know based on the story of Peter, one of the, one of the greatest stories told in scripture, that he becomes a great man of God and he lays down his life for his master. He refers to the people that he shepherded as precious ones, just as Jesus was shouting out to the disciples when they're in the boat as children. There is this care, there is this tenderness that Peter develops later in his life as an apostle. Then verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So at the end of this restoration, this encountership that Jesus has with Peter, he shares with Peter his future martyrdom, that he will be crucified upside down during the reign of Nero. And this is something that he anticipated ever since when you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, 12 through 15. Now, there are two church fathers, by the way, that do mention Peter's death that we have an historical account in the early church. One of them is Tertullian and the other is Eusebius. And notice here at the end, when Jesus says, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep, love my sheep, guard my sheep, he says at the end again, follow me. 
So Jesus started the ministry with Peter as one of his disciples to follow me and be fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. And then he ends it by saying, follow me. He gives the same command that he gave him from the very beginning. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will guide and protect you. And then at the end here, Jesus foretells of John's future in verses 20 through 24. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So after hearing about his future, that is Peter's future, that he's going to die, uh, Peter's a bit distracted with John's future affairs. And this is important because even though Peter's love is not where it should be with the Lord, Peter had a great fondness and love and appreciation. He valued John and their friendship. And so it makes sense that he's now concerned about John because he knows how close John was with Jesus as well. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it that to you? I believe this phrase, by the way, is referring that John's going to be the one that's going to survive you all. He's going to receive the final revelation. And he says to Peter, you follow me, meaning Peter, you're going to be the leader in the early church. And then you're going to be uh, put to death as a result of it. And John's going to continue it. And verse 23, it says, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it that to you? I think this is significant for several reasons. One, Jesus is telling Peter, hey, mind your own business because you have to increase your love and your commitment to be the apostle that I've called you to be and to be the leader that I've called you to be, not just tending to the needs of the early church, but Peter being a standard for the other disciples, the other apostles to follow. Another thing that's significant about this is John has to worry about what I've called him to do. You can't always take matters into your own hands, Peter, and solve everyone's problems. Don't try to interfere with the intervention of what God is doing here. And I think this is a significant way to kind of put Peter really in his place not to worry about things you're not to worry about. If I if I told you that this is your responsibility, I would have gave you that command, but he didn't. So don't worry about affairs that you're not to. And I think that's very true in our own lives. As Jesus restores us like he did Peter, and as Peter was concerned about John, for good reason, for good measure, but at the same time, hey, look, focus on what you need to be focusing on. I think that that is a true and powerful message for us today. If God needs to restore you because you have blown it, you've let him down, you've had uh, a lack of faith, or you're struggling with certain doubts that are consuming your life, and you need to deal with them, and you haven't, and so it's wrecking your life, it's crippling you, it's paralyzing you, throw it out to God. Just like Jesus met Thomas's needs, he certainly will meet your needs. You need to trust him for that. And last but not least, just like Peter was kind of scolded in a way Sometimes we need to be scolded. If we are butting in, if we are trying to take matters into our own hands, if we're control freaks, if we're not letting God move because we want to do it our way and really not surrender it to his way, I pray that you get right with God today and let him move in your life. These are powerful examples, my friends. And hopefully as we studied Thomas and we studied Peter and a little bit of John, that it spoke to you today. So thank you guys for listening. I pray it's been a great blessing and encouragement to you. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. 
For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at StandStrongMinistries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.